Hello friends, welcome to another FUDS on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris, delighted to be here with you. Uh, unfortunately, due to some scheduling issues, we've not been able to produce the Studio Ghibli episode that we're planning to do this month, so I'm afraid you are going to have to put up with a bit of a clip show. Uh, this is from the second year of our podcast, mainly the first half, so that covers the second half of 2016. If you're a new listener, welcome. Uh, we hope that this retrospective will give you some interesting views and funny moments about some films to think about. Um, if you've been with us a long time, we apologise for the repeats. And hey, why not take the night off? First up, a tasty morsel from our intermission episode in July 2016, as we talk about Gods of Egypt. The post-Brexit world of fun controls. <laughs> First, we will, I suppose, kick off with Gods of Egypt. Uh, Craig, would you like oh, to give us a, a, a bash on that? M- must we kick off with that, Scott? Must we? Well, it's always best to get the bad news out of the way first, I think. <laughs> I'll take it from that. We're in broad agreement on this then. <laughs> um, yes, Gods of Egypt, Scott. The Egypt in question here being the little-known hamlet of Egypt in Oxfordshire, judging by the accents <laughs> on display. Uh, plundering the rich mythology of Egyptian legend for its inspiration, the movie kicks off with Osiris, played with native Egyptian authority by pasty Australian everyman Brian Brown, the king of the gods abdicating to his son Horus, Game of Thrones authentic Egyptian screen presence Nikolaj Kosterwaldo, uh, not so much amid the backdrop of the pyramids as on the pyramid stage at Glastonbury before an adoring audience of subjects. <laughs> as a parting gift, Osiris, uh, Osiris rather, I don't know where I'm getting Osiris from, Osiris <laughs> announces to the gathered crowd that no longer will entry to the afterlife be subject to accumulated wealth, but rather based on the content of one's heart and the good deeds performed day to day as citizens of Egypt. So, enter stage left Set, played by Gerard Butler, Scotland's own authentic Egyptian thesp, <laughs> who is the brother of Osiris and somewhat upset that he hasn't been handed the reins of power. Notably angered by Osiris's commie death manifesto pledges, strident sole capitalist Set stages an overthrow of the Order of Gods, a coup de ra, if you will. Oh, Ooh, I see what did there. oh, I'm so much more proud of that than anyone involved in this film should be of their work. <laughs> in which he pokes his... <laughs> in which he pokes his brother fatally with an ornate pointy thing, revealing that everyone in this film has PG-13 certified citrus sunny delight coursing through their veins. To cap it all off, Set gives Horus a going over and removes his eyes, as one does, which, as it turns out, is partly a scheme to manufacture some sort of Bronze Age Giver suit, but probably best not to ask. Somewhere in the midst of this brouhaha, we have been introduced to Beck, a young thief blinded by love for his partner Zaya, who is sent to work for the architect of Set's skyscraping monument to his daddy Ra, and then killed and sent to purgatory. Uh, don't worry if you're not following this, because honestly, it really isn't important. <laughs> Beck decides that to save his love from eternal damnation and be the big hero of the franchise that this most definitely will not become, he needs to snatch back at least one of Horus's eyes. And having done so, the unlikely pairing of God and Weird Boy Man set off to kick some unearthly ass. Now... If all of that sounds like it has the potential to be the setup of a thoroughly daft yet entertaining romp, you'd be right. It does. The problem is that it is not. $140 million is a lot of money for a studio to spend setting up a potential summer franchise without anyone apparently manning the quality control department. For if they had, Gods of Egypt would never have made it off the page. Uh, it's not that this type of thing can't make for rewarding Sunday matinee fare. Uh, just look at The Mummy for the closest 
comparison in tone, scale and optimism. Uh, no, it's that in order to make headway with this kind of historical fantasy trash, you need to have some idea where it is you want to get to and how to get there, as well as some vague understanding of what fun actually is. <laughs> Gods of Egypt tries so hard to make you like it, but has chosen to stack the deck so firmly against its own favour that one has to wonder what the hell director Alex Proyas was thinking when he took on the script. We here at Fuds and Film are fairly committed fans of Proyas, from the pretty decent The Crow through the excellent Dark City, which we discussed recently in our Tech Noir episode, and even the underrated Knowing in 2009, which was his most recent gig until now. Hell, even iRobot isn't that terrible, and it certainly offers evidence that Proyas does in fact know how to handle a mahoosive budget and still have fun doing it. Perhaps then it's in the seven years between that he has forgotten what the purpose of a summer movie is, because on this evidence you'd be forgiven for mistaking his work as that of a first-time director. Not that all of this debacle is Proyas' fault, quite apart from the aforementioned script and its terrible, terrible affronts to what it clearly thinks is pithy humour, the casting of this movie defies belief. Much in the vein of Exodus Gods and Kings before it, Gods of Egypt drew no small amount of flack for its steadfast refusal to cast anyone even vaguely Middle Eastern, never mind Egyptian or, at a push, African. Now, there is an argument to be made that the whole point of this acting malarkey is to pretend to be someone who you're not, and perhaps we should be glad the movie didn't go so far as to black up. But nonetheless, the complete absence of regional <laughs> actors is both mystifying and, inevitably, downright offensive. Ironically, Gerard Butler perhaps disappoints the least, as he delivers exactly what you'd expect from Gerard Butler. Yeah. Shouty McShouting and his arms wide, chest out posturing. <laughs> that the talented Costa Waldo makes little impact is the greatest shame, and as for the top billing of up-and-coming, inverted commas, Australian talent, inverted commas, Brenton Thwaites, in a role that necessitates charisma, charm, sympathy and, well any modicum of acting skill will do. Let's just agree that the less said of his bewildering attempt at keeping his head above water, quite possibly a reflection of his career from this point if his agent doesn't come up with the goods, the better. By the time Geoffrey Rush shows up as Ra on his cosmic pussy barge, agitating one... <laughs> At that point, you just go, yeah, of course it's Jeff. Of course. <laughs> Agitating one of the sandworms from Dune with his fusion-powered <laughs> boomstick, you'd be forgiven for assuming you were undergoing some sort of bad hallucinogenic trip, either that or for being asleep. We will not be seeing any further instalments of Gods of Egypt in future, of that I am certain. Box office and word of mouth will take care of that, <clears throat> excluding the unlikely event of it making rain overseas. Unfortunately, what has been done cannot be undone. And while I would dearly like my two hours plus change back, I'm afraid my plea to the gods seems to be falling on deaf ears. Do not subject yourself to this. It is shit. <laughs> Isn't it just? It's. <laughs> I'm at a loss, Scott. <laughs> Why did we agree to this? I have no idea. Uh, well, I kind of thought it, it had potential because... It has a, a general overarching concept that could work. It's not that bad an idea. Oh. It's the same as Clash and Blast of the Titans from a few years back. It's a rich, some, rich mythology and one we yeah. have not seen plundered that often. Um, so both those Clash and Wrath of the Titans, of course, were similarly dreadful. But, I mean, essentially, let's do Jason and the Argonauts again, but with fancy CG graphics is mm. not a bad idea. Yeah. It's just that no one has been able to do that without it being absolute garbage. Mm. And this is, uh, it, it should be a welcome change of pace from all the kind of comic book adaptations that we get, get but uh, no, no, this is 
very bad. Um, I don't really know where to start picking it apart, to be honest. Um, mm. It's probably not the main problem, but I think there's an indication of it very early on. I mean, this film has a lot of actors who I either like or, at the very worst, don't mind. Yeah. Uh, for them, but as soon as Brian Brown opens his mouth. And- <laughs> Like, bless him, I don't mind Brian Brown. He's, he's quite good in a lot of roles, but aside I would love a, to sit and have a pint with Brian Brown. I'm sure he'd be a, a, a marvellous raconteur. I'm sure he would be, but I mean, Osiris calls for he's, a measured, stately, regal tone, and that is not the primary fire mode in Brian Brown's acting arsenal. <laughs> uh, it's, just, it's all the way through. There just seems to be no thought behind any of the casting, and it, the CG looks... I'll give it this. It CG is at least consistent. Mm-hmm. It's consistently abysmal, but it's consistent. They've got a style and pick Listen, one. some of the landscape stuff isn't bad, and where it looks a little bit, where it looks a little bit um, uh, overwrought, I think is I can, I can put down to being a stylistic choice. Yeah. Um, however, you're it's you're quite right. Are oh my old. days! The sort of transformations to to god form and such like. I find myself just thinking, oh, it's. I mean, it barely it barely needs saying, right? But there's the. I mean, aside from just the general quality of it, it suffers so badly from the weightless um, lack of authority that pixel mm. upon pixel battle to the <laughs> death by boredom <laughs> um, carries with it. It's it's um, so by this point this sort of thing can be done so convincingly and so well on a fraction of the budget provided here that you yeah. just have to wonder where the hell has the money gone? Yeah. Um, the, the, it's obviously gone into this big CG bucket, but I don't think they've got a whole lot of value from that bucket at the end of the day. <laughs> there's, a, there's a hole in your bucket. <laughs> <laughs> dear Alex, dear Alex. I mean, even the, the kind of smaller aesthetic decisions that were made, like the, uh, I understand why God's maybe taller taller than humans. That does not seem to be a bad concept in general. But when someone saw the first composite of Mm -hmm. big, tall Jamie Lannister and (laughs) wee crappy that fella, they should have looked at Little and Largely and went, this is not going to work for a feature film. Let's rethink this. But they didn't. (laughs) I get the impression that they were so happy with that choice that I actually thought, yeah, this is cool. This is our thing. This is People are going to be like, (laughs) wow. Forgetting that we saw this sort of thing in the Lord of the Rings films, what, about 20 years ago now? (laughs) Thereabouts. Yeah. Uh, Just just baffling. And the the plot is just nonsense. (laughs) It's... The general concept of it is fine, but it's so hinged on the kind of charisma between and the relationship between your two leads that is just simply not present. That I just cannot hope to hold any sort of interest. So by the time it gets to the end, where you know after Seth has backstabbed uh, Jeffrey Rush for reasons I'm not entirely sure were ever explained, apart from <laughs> Seth is a total dick. There's a lot um, of stuff in this that isn't explained. <laughs> Yeah, it just, it just seems almost impossible to find anyone who could care about this film. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're we're not going to be lobbying for that any time soon. No, no. I mean, I'm look. I'm, in my later years, I appear to have mellowed to the point where I I, I don't mind a lot of films as much as I perhaps should. Um, mm. And I'm, I'm almost tempted to make an exception to this and really start laying into it. But for most part of it, I was just bored by mm-hmm. the film rather than finding it particularly bad that's that its said, biggest crime it's just not fun <laughs> but i mean even if i'm looking at it through my rosiest possible glasses this is still a very strong contender for worst film of the year mm. um there is certainly no reason at all for anyone to inflict this upon themselves yes 
just leave it. It's not <laughs> worth it. We we inflict that upon ourselves so you don't have to. Um, although judging by box office numbers and no, uh, it's just, yeah, <laughs> you didn't. You didn't anyway. Well, well done, well done. You you're of an IQ considerably higher than our own. And we move on to another personal favourite of mine, where Craig and myself talk about the wonderful Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Enjoy. Speaking of that more fanciful era of Mars, mm. Robinson Crusoe on Mars presents us with a representative sample of that era and also a rare instance of the elevator pitch surviving to become the title of the finished film. (laughs) Craig, let's look at that. Robinson Crusoe on Mars, or as we shall henceforth be referring to it, Scott, the greatest gift granted to cinema by the 1960s. Helmed by journeyman director Brian... Brian. Byron Haskin. Uh, Robinson Crusoe on Mars begins with an orbiting Martian gravity probe mission crewed by Colonel Dan McCready, Adam West, and Commander Kit Draper, Paul Mantee, going a bit Pete Tong when an orbiting asteroid forces them to take evasive manoeuvres. Through some contrivance I now forget, Draper ends up leaving McCready in orbit while he crashes to the Martian surface in a capsule, beginning what is marketed as a desperate and, to quote the original poster, scientifically authentic (laughs) quest for food, water and air. The reason I forget why Draper and McCready were separated is because this movie opens hard on the boomwow, giving you Batman and a zero-G space-suited monkey in the first 90 seconds. So (laughs) let's be perfectly clear here. Whatever happens from this point forward is completely irrelevant. This (laughs) is a five-star movie by default. Now, the desperation with which Draper must go about his quest for survival is only desperation in the sense of that one time you said you were desperate for the toilet whilst a passenger in a car, only to realise upon getting out that you were sitting awkwardly and putting pressure on your bladder all along. (laughs) If you're in the market for some sort of document as to how a movie can go about undermining its whole premise within moments of having set it up, then boy have I got a treat for you. So desperate is Draper for air that, while scouting the atmospheric hellhole that is the surface of Mars, he routinely flips his worryingly slack visor up and down with gay abandon, (laughs) often with no purpose in doing so, and certainly with no consequence. It shortly transpires that Draper can go 15 minutes at a time without having to top up his oxygen, because of course he can. And when he does, he does that by huffing it directly from the valve of his presumably highly pressurised oxygen tank. (laughs) The (laughs) The problem is eradicated entirely upon the discovery of oxygenating rocks. How convenient. And similarly, the food issue is licked in record time by the discovery of poi sausages, <laughs> which look exactly like lengths of salami stuffed inside modelling balloons. It turns out upon inspecting the movie's production history that this is in fact because they were lengths of salami stuffed inside balloons. <laughs> Oh, and the monkey shows him where to find water, in case you were wondering. Uh, It soon becomes apparent that the movie's claim of scientific authenticity was clearly the work of an overly zealous marketing department, or possibly a lunatic, and the movie offers (laughs) enough evidence of the latter to make it an utterly obvious outcome upon the application of Occam's razor. Fortunately, for all its boneheaded stupidity and downright daftness, Robinson Crusoe on Mars is a thoroughly enjoyable slice of Technicolor schlock. The all-encompassing bizarreness of the opening hour carried me along in a wave of absolute disbelief that never really subsided, uh, even when we were introduced to Friday just after the halfway point. In fact, at this point, the movie actually takes a turn for the worst, in my opinion, with the relationship between Draper and his new companion, uh, a conveniently humanoid uh, uh, human from somewhere on Orion's (laughs) belt, failing to entertain as much as it should. 
That is perhaps as much the fault of the certifiably bonkers first act raising <laughs> raising to such a crescendo <laughs> that it drowns out everything around it, including Victor London's performance as, essentially, a Native American who happens to have woken up on a life-supporting Mars with a bag of M&Ms as his air supply, I shit you not, and who learns conversational English in the space of what appears to be a day, maybe two at tops. There's so much wrong with Robinson Crusoe on Mars that it beggars belief, and yet, despite that, it somehow hangs together so determinedly under its own demented internal logic that it completely won me over. I was initially baffled as to why this movie was part of the Criterion Collection, but I kind of get it now. It's a self-contained cross-section of 60s B-movie sci-fi that so perfectly encapsulates the genre, it almost renders its peers redundant heartily recommended and Scott I think I made more notes on Robinson Crusoe on Mars <laughs> than I have for any other movie in my life what an amazing slice of cinema it, it, it's certainly a film that raises far more questions than it answers or <laughs> even addresses any form at all like, why is there a breathable atmosphere on Mars why do the rocks produce oxygen when heated What's the deal with these randomly rolling fireballs? Why is there water on Mars? Why is there a race of human slaves on Mars? Who's enslaving them? Why, when it seems very much like the more advanced spacecraft, don't they care that much about humans invading their territory? Why is there a plant on Mars that grows pepperoni sausages? Why are the pepperoni sausages safe if eaten raw, but powerful hallucinogens when cooked? Why did they bring a monkey to Mars? <laughs> they weren't even supposed to land. <laughs> oh, Bonkers. it's absolutely joyous! I'm so I'm so glad you mentioned the fireball thing because that was the first thing that caught me that caught me completely broadside, and I laughed myself silly at it. And I thought, well, that's a silly thing. And by Jove, within I don't know, conservative estimate, sixty seconds, that had become the most logical thing. Of course, there's happened. apparently sentient fireballs running around. Why not? Why wouldn't there be? <laughs> well, it's just for the whole thing, the whole mission itself, or certainly the sort of the training of these guys seems so, so embedded in buffoonery right from the off. <laughs> this guy Draper <laughs> chooses the worst landing spot imaginable for his capsule. He decides to land it. Not only amongst these towering, this towering wall of flames that is just for some reason sprouting from the surface of Mars, but also on the edge of a cliff, which it duly topples over. Oh dear! It does seem it does seem somewhat surprised to have a slow horizontal fireball doddle past him and somehow trash the capsule. Beyond that point, of course, but. Uh, do you know uh, uh, that that whole opening act is just so amazing? The point at which he immediately hears what is plainly a hostile alien life form <laughs> screeching murderous intent. No problem, dude. I've got my <laughs> I've got my standard issue NASA emergency hand cannon <laughs> with again conservative estimate like an eight inch barrel on it. <laughs> it's one of those crazy like break barrel single shot cartridge pistol things. <laughs> It's totally what astronauts carry into space. <laughs> and the noise the noise turns out to be a loose strap vibrating in the wind as no strap has ever done in the history of wind or straps. I, I honestly thought I thought I must have had some poi sausage myself, Scott, cooked, obviously. It's just it's so absolutely bizarre. So absolutely bizarre. The guy war the guy decides to try and warm his hands through what is presumably like an insulated spacesuit by walking <laughs> 
walking up to a crevasse <laughs> that is sprouting flames and holding his hands up to it. And then, and then gets, to- <laughs> then gets toasted by a hadouken. <laughs> and let's, let's out this amazing scream that becomes like a motif for the next five minutes because he then just <laughs> stumbles about. <laughs> he sets off exploring the landscape of Mars and immediately falls off another, another <laughs> cliff. <laughs> At which point. I'm thinking, note to self, establish better understanding of cliffs. <laughs> and let us out this yell again, which I'm pretty sure was just the same. Bah! Dubbed back, <laughs> dubbed back over the scene. Honestly, I was beginning to suspect that this guy had cheated his astronaut exam. It's such a joyous thing. It is so... These people are the most, are the furthest removed from astronaut material that you can possibly have. And the preparation that has gone into the supposed Mars mission is as far removed from proper space mission parameters as you can imagine. <laughs> the point at which I realised he was just flipping open his visor. <laughs> what just to like, get a better view. Oh, it's a bit I dusty. Thought, yeah, I thought, this can't... This can't get any worse. <laughs> and then at one point he said, in order to lament the fact the lack of atmosphere won't allow him to start a fire, he opens this, sorry, he opens his visor <laughs> to lament the fact the lack of atmosphere won't allow him to start a fire with the book of hotel matches that he's brought on a space mission to Mars. Oh, Scott, what's happening? <laughs> it's like you showed up late for the launch after a wild night out and just, just got straight into the capsule. Right, his gloves are unzipped the whole time. His space is comprised of zips, which I'm pretty sure aren't airtight. But he's walking about with his gloves off the whole time. <laughs> no problem, bro. <laughs> It's just honestly to the point where I don't know why they even bothered to pretend the guy was on Mars. It's absolutely ridiculous. Oh, oh dear. I'm sorry. I've got so many notes. I've got so many notes, but we'd probably just burn the whole podcast going through them. I I don't know. I mean, do you share my do you share my joy at this movie, Scott? Certainly for the first hour. Um, I think more or less like you say, when when Friday joins up, I kind of tuned out and stopped paying a hell of a lot of attention, apart from things like his, uh, his NASA issue camera on a stick uh, that we're using to, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to scope out what's been going on <laughs> over like the cliff. Like his 8-track voice recorder that's the size of, like, cabin luggage. <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah, so... I don't know. It's it's definitely worth watching about the first forty five minutes of this film. I think by that point you've probably got the gist of it and could probably skip the rest of it. Yeah. Um, it's and I I don't really quite understand why this is in the Criterion Collection. I think it must have been an elaborate April Fool's prank. But um, I mean, yeah, it it does, as I say, give a really good example of the sort of nonsense that sixties science fiction was getting away with and saying was scientifically accurate. It's, it's, it's is... probably it's probably difficult for us to appreciate outside of the US. But I suppose where I'm coming from is that I I guess. 60s sci-fi B-movies are such an entrenched and informed part of the American cultural psyche, right? Certainly for like two, three generations that 
this it kind of does serve a purpose because for all its for all its jankiness in the writing like some some of the well, some of the production value for the time on this movie seems quite good it's actually in a sense the sort of the technical presentation of this the cetera it was actually quite appealing in some respects hmm. it it represents in in some facets the um the best of the genre but honestly in terms of in terms of the inception and the thought which has gone into this i think the most obvious joke is that i can't understand how anyone could have been convinced that this had any scientific <laughs> authenticity whatsoever the biggest joke has to be that emblazoned across the poster yeah um but oh my goodness what a what a, what a remarkable amount of fun i had like you say for the first hour <laughs> I, I honestly if it if the rest of the movie if the last 45 minutes of the movie had been draper and mona the monkey different kettle yeah. of fish friday turning up is uh is definitely like a turning point but i love this relationship that he has with more of the monkey he's so super excited to see her when he comes across the other crash capsule he's so excited to see more although he does come within a fraction of a second of blowing her head off with this crazy <laughs> hand cannon and then as he's running out of oxygen he opens up his rations so that, quote, at least you'll have a full belly, and gives them to the monkey. And then he records his dying voice memo, <laughs> conks out, regains oxygen by the daftest of chemical contrivances, and then immediately, <laughs> fuck you, give me my rations back. <laughs> it's, absolutely, it's absolutely inspired. It's absolutely demented, and I cannot, honestly, I think, I think, I, I would say I recommend it heartily, but yeah, perhaps you're, um, Perhaps the provision you provide there is um, is best. Honestly, at the point at which Friday shows up, probably press stop and you'll have had like a rip-roaring hour of entertainment that, honestly, I haven't <laughs> had that much fun uh, watching a movie in such a long time. I actually had to go back and watch that first hour again because I was making, I was pausing to make so many notes um, and I realised <laughs> that actually, what what am I doing? I need to go back and, and I stopped taking notes from that point and, uh, and just and watch the thing again from the start. And how much fun! Unbelievable. But yes, uh, the last forty-five minutes you could you could lose down the back of the sofa quite happily, I think. Yes, and certainly if you're a fan of the, the kind of kitsch '60s sci-fi aesthetic and the, the well that, that sort of Barbarella sort of thing, then you'll probably get a lot of enjoyment out of uh, Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Uh, yeah, that, it, it had lost me by the end. If you think if you sit down and watch it all in one sitting, I I got bored enough by the end of it that I couldn't recommend it. But mm. yeah, there's a there's a solid first hour of just logic and reason defying laughs to be had from what was going on. <laughs> the, the, I loved the bit the oxygen in these rocks. I've got to find some way to store it um, in the rocks, <laughs> perhaps by piling the rocks in the corner. It's also got if I were this guy and I got to Mars and I was stranded there and I had to break out this thing labelled as emergency survival video right and i turned it on and i kid you not the, the survival expert in the video speaks the lines water is where you find it the thing is to know where to find it at that, at that point i would have smashed the equipment in a blind rage and also dude kill the monkey the monkey is a resource thief right eat the monkey Eat the monkey, but uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Crazy, a crazy, crazy movie. I think we've probably discussed it enough by this point. Although, having said that, I think it's probably about sixty seconds worth of discussion if you're if we edit out my laughter. But um, <laughs> let's let's move on, Scott. Next up from our September twenty sixteen look at the career of Michael Cimino, 
we're going to talk about the deer hunter. Uh, well, next team for the little bone indie hit, the deer hunter. Oh, so. we're up to the deer hunter already. Yes. Oh, dearie me, talk about a <laughs> <laughs> talk about one giant leap for mankind. Yeah. Um, can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine the anticipation amongst the rifle loving outdoors demographic of Middle America circa <laughs> 1978, Scott? It must have been palpable. Was uh, was Robert this film De Niro... about deer hunting coming out? It sounds like it'll be good. I like deer hunting. I yes. like hunting deer. This is going to be a nice feel-good family entertainment about shooting Bambi. About real men. Was uh, I think the primary question there had to be on people's lips was going to be: Was Robert De Niro going to be a three hundred eight Winchester Magnum guy, or or perhaps one of those hardcore home ammo enthusiasts who necks seven millimeter Remington cases to take two eighty four rounds? Oh man, Scott. <laughs> How awesome would it be if he turned out to be a compound bow guy who smeared himself in buck species and slept naked in a tent made of his own flesh or something for three years before the hunt? This is going to be... This is going to be used piano wire for close quarters combat. This is going to be the best movie ever. Imagine then the dismay at what turned out to be three hours of arse-numbing polemic against the Vietnam War. <laughs> the human impact of its indiscriminate psychological atrocities, I don't know why I'm laughing, upon the blue-collar menfolk of the Rust Belt and its effect on the American psyche in general. Only now do I realise geographically where Pennsylvania is situated on a map of the states and that it is nowhere near the Rust Belt, but never mind. <laughs> if you haven't seen The Deer Hunter, you are probably doing yourself a disservice which is not to say that viewing it is necessarily an enjoyable process. Uh, joining Apocalypse Now among the pantheon of great American movies that turned an inward eye toward the USA's involvement in one of the most divisive, dehumanising conflicts of recent memory, or just human memory, uh, is a poster child not just for cinema as social introspection, but also the application of bold narrative choices that seem to cap the experimental willingness of the 70s golden era quite fittingly. The movie chronicles the fortunes of a group of Pennsylvania steelworkers. Mike, Robert De Niro, Nick, Chris Walken, Steve, John Savage, Stanley, John Cazal, a man who I still miss, uh, well, I didn't know him personally, but <laughs> whose screen presence I think is sorely missed today. Axel, um, Chuck Aspergren, and John, uh, George, I've never known how to pronounce his surname, Zunza. Uh, Steve's marriage to his partner Angela is imminent and for him, Mike and Nick the ceremony will be a last chance to spend time together with their friends and families before heading to Vietnam having volunteered to serve their country In unorthodox and no doubt audience baffling narrative fashion much of the first act of the movie is occupied with the wedding ceremony followed by a deer hunting trip which highlights tensions amongst the group and establishes Mike's trust in Nick alone as his wingman in matters as important as blowing the head off defenceless animals. <laughs> the transition to Vietnam <laughs> takes some time and is jarringly abrupt, placing the viewer immediately at the centre of the chaos and confusion of war in a way that predates Private Ryan by some 20 years. It's a bold narrative shift, no doubt designed to pull the rug out from under the audience, and it proves very effective in conveying how quickly and utterly the US found the waters of war rising above its head. Uh, Semino, never one to shy away from harsh brutality, throws our trio of friends almost immediately into a genuinely harrowing game of forced Russian roulette at the hands of a group of Viet Cong captors. It's perhaps the movie's most famous scene, and with good reason, but it must have been a tough pill to swallow for home audiences while the wounds were very much still healing. De Niro and Walken both might never have bettered their performances in this scene, let alone throughout the rest of the movie. Alas for our characters, it will not prove the last time that we see the pair face each other, across the table with a loaded gun in hand. 
It's probably difficult for modern audiences to appreciate the total audacity of Samino's approach, crafting not so much a movie as a cultural punch to the gut that, whilst unflinching to this day, uh, it must truly only have been felt upon release. Uh, often mentioned in the same breath as Apocalypse Now, it's blatantly disingenuous to compare the two, with Coppola's undeniably groundbreaking opus nonetheless closer to Alice in Wonderland with guns than the story being told here. <laughs> Um, pretty much everything about the Deer Hunter is cinema firing on all of its most potent cylinders, backed by innumerable career-best performances. When Meryl Streep's presence fades into the subconscious over a movie's running time, you know there is some serious <laughs> thespin going down, and it's honestly very difficult to find any fault whatsoever amongst the movie's cast. By the time we return to Pennsylvania, minus one member of the group, both the characters and we, the audience, find ourselves not so much having reached a resolution as preparing for a long journey to recovery. I'd forgotten just how excellent a movie The Deer Hunter is, having last viewed it many moons ago when my faculties were still very much forming. Uh, revisiting it now strikes me how much of a kick in the teeth it still represents and that it has probably remained the Naples ultra of Vietnam movies. Regardless of whatever else Samino did or did not accomplish, much of which we will discuss in this podcast, um, throughout his career he most certainly remained the holder of a respect pass on the strength of this, his best movie alone. Quite remarkable. And this is the point, Scott, at which you probably turn around and say, I've never liked The Deer Hunter. <laughs> well, I've never been able to watch The Deer Hunter. Um, having now <laughs> actually got my way through it, I, I think I, on at least three occasions that I remember, I've sat down to watch The Deer Hunter and got about half an hour to 45 minutes in and went bored now and went off and did something else, which is rare <laughs> for me. Uh, but there is something about this film that I, I just cannot get on with. Uh, mm, it is white whale. <laughs> there is, look, it's, there's two hours of fantastic cinema in there and one hour of turgid nonsense at the start. Uh, the, the whole first hour <laughs> act of the wedding scene, I think, is... Uh, it's, it a makes, difficult, it's a difficult sell. Uh, it's not so much that the idea of it annoys me. It's like, obviously, it's a good idea to get to know some of these characters, but I think mm. it's just misguided in that you learn far more, in my opinion, about everyone that's not a main character in that first hour than mm -hmm. you do about the main characters themselves. There's right, that's, in, that's interesting because that, yeah, that's very much a thought I think I'd held in my head over the, the first couple of times that I watched it, but sorry, carry on. Yeah, it, it seems like there's a lot of really nice little touches about characterization, um, particularly from the uh, going into some of the other guys, like John Casale's performance particularly. Uh, but I don't feel in that whole hour I learn anything more than you could have got across in about five minutes about mm. your actual two leads, um, you know, De Niro and uh, Walken. And if I learn anything at all about John Savage over the course of this entire film, yeah, I must have missed it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's just... <laughs> it's some narrative in flabbiness in that first hour, and I find it is very difficult to get through. I think it's just a bad hour of film. Mm. There's two fantastic hours after it, but you really have to take your licks first uh, to actually get to it. But uh, yeah, when you get into the, the whole Vietnam narrative and everything that happens after that, yeah, it, it's a terrific film from that point on. But it's, I, I just find it difficult to call a film a bona fide classic when a full third of it is poor, uh, in my opinion. I just don't like it. Uh, the other two hours are you know, as good as cinema can get, probably in terms of its emotional impact and what it can uh, show about a conflict like this and the effect that it can have on them it's obviously not particularly or indeed at all uh, historically accurate which will mm. come to in future <laughs> films as well um, but uh, it doesn't Wait. matter it, it, as as many people say it does 
capture the you know the, the actual feeling the the kind of a greater truth of the Vietnam War and how the effect that it had on America that's that is fantastic stuff but yeah that that first hour is just tough <laughs> yeah I see where you're coming from with that I think I, I I feel like I want to give him a pass for that and and as much as I as much as I really really enjoyed the Deer Hunter again watching it recently I do I do I, it's not that I find that first hour enjoyable to watch it is a bit of a trudge I think it probably works better on a first viewing if you only if if you're watching this film for the first time i think that first hour probably works better because i feel like rather than rather than necessarily character development i feel it's a bit more about sort of community development or way of life development and the notion is that the movie wants to say look at this particular class of people rather than these hmm. characters individually and you know let's get let's get comfortable with this class of people and this this particular way of life now look what we did as a country to these people when we sent them off to fight although ironically the characters here i think weren't conscripted they they chose to go and fight <laughs> which seems it's which seems an odd narrative choice and maybe i'm missing something there um but i yeah that i mean even now uh, like i've got to be honest and say that i watched the first hour at double speed <laughs> just just to get through that because there actually isn't a lot to be gleaned from it in terms of character and it is in the it is in the latter two thirds of the film that um stuff comes to the fore but i had a sne- i had i don't know why but i had a sneaking suspicion that you were going to have a contrary well not necessarily a fully contrary opinion but um something less glowing to say about the deer hunter i still think it remains like a a, a touchstone um in modern american cinema but definitely i think I understand where you're coming from in that first hour. Um, I mean, uh, did you still did you still find obviously that transition from the sort of the first hour to the second hour? Did you still find that impactful, or were you just kind of too numbed by that that first hour of exposition to to feel the to feel the kick of that? Um, I guess I did. It's certainly a very jarring transition. Well, you say transition, it's not even transition. It's a no. uh, it's a slam cut, and uh, yeah. it, it, it does work uh, very effectively. Uh, and it's not like it's just going into Vietnam as they're choppered in anywhere. Sometimes it's almost immediately as he uh, Mike decides to barbecue someone for. Yeah, it feels like it's actually <laughs> in the aftermath of a major battle. It's not even yeah, 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 yeah. dropping exactly. into a big battle, or it's like okay, here's a point where just the last few survivors are mopping each other up. Yeah, and as I say, from that point on, it is a classic film. It's just the the, the front loading of it makes it difficult to wholeheartedly mm. recommend. I guess I'd have to two thirds of a heartedly uh, recommend yeah. it. But you know, from that point on, it is still a classic. And just to reiterate the things you said, it is such a tremendously brave film uh, to make, especially when the wounds would have been so close uh, from the, the conflict itself. Mm. It's the sort of analysis of a war you would expect to see 30, 40 years later, uh, yeah. rather than you know when it's. Uh, right on the on the cusp of, of memory. Um, yeah, I think it's startlingly mature in that respect. Yeah, and it, it, again, it, it doesn't really pull any punches. It's not explicitly having anyone go on a tirade against how this is a you know against the American mm. dream, but just that even something like the last scene of them just uh, singing it just makes it so effective in terms of getting that across without actually rubbing your face in it about how yeah. this is this is not what the promise of America was and uh, the, the horrors that this has inflicted upon people uh, much more than something like uh, well uh, Jacob's Ladder had from just a, mm-hmm. a few podcasts ago uh, so yeah there, there's a lot of great things in here and you know it's a fantastic turn from Walken and De Niro um, Walken in particular mm. uh, it is strange from him in particular, well, actually, both these guys, uh, when you watch their earlier work and realise how great they were, yeah. and while they're still 
not so much that they're not great now, but now they're quite happily uh, descending into self-parody. Yeah, and, like uh, Walken particularly, right, is, is, it's hard to remember a point in his career where he wasn't hammy Walken. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is most definitely not, yeah, I, I know absolutely what you're talking about there. This is, I still think now when I look back, this is this is the least Walken of Walken performances and is yeah. all the better for it, I think. Yes. Uh, what else do we see in this film? I guess we also see the beginnings. There's elements of it in Thunder, uh, uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, where Sabino is not only a great director, but um, I assume it's himself rather than a cinematographer, but he, he's able to create some very stunning shots. He mm. clearly loves his, some mountains. Oh, yes. The, those shots in the kind of mountain ranges is just uh, absolutely perfectly done, and we'll see that in pretty much everything we talk about from here on in. Um, yeah, but a very beautiful film when it needs to be. And mm. mostly that's a, a stunning contrast with the absolute <laughs> horrors that he, he manages to put with that pre, uh, Prisoner of War in the particular, beast. which yeah. is oh, just um, a shocking and <laughs> achieved not by special effects or something, but largely just by submerging your lead actors and rubbing rats on them. Uh, which yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Having them react appropriately. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, stunning stuff from that point. And uh, everything that happens from there on in is also just a, just one emotional uh, gut punch after another. So yes, it, it all works terrifically well from that point on. It's a, a great film when it actually gets to Vietnam, but I'm not so convinced hmm. that the, the journey to get there is necessarily worth an hour of your time yeah so i think we're broadly in agreement <coughs> on it as a film in in general but we probably have different opinions on how necessary the well, probably only slightly different opinions on how necessary that first hour is mm-hmm. actually that's an interesting experiment if any of you listening haven't watched the deer hunter yet do us a favor and just jump in at the hour mark it yeah. might feel jarring but it's gonna it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna <laughs> jar anyway in a couple of minutes so yeah let, let us know what you think of it as just a war movie without the yeah. wedding shit yeah, here's what you need to know. Uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> basically, absolutely. There's one guy who talks about one shot a bit, and there's another guy that likes trees. That's, That's pretty, actually <laughs> that is pretty succinct. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, regardless, though, off the back of um, the Deer Hunter, the critical praise, the Oscars, um, it's not hard to see why Semino was pretty much given a blank check. Yeah. Uh, for for his next movie, Heaven's Gate. A regrettable course of action, as it turned out, yes. for United Artists. Schoolboy error. We took a look at some classic 70s horror in our October 2016 episode, and as part of that, we spoke about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What, have, uh, what are we speaking of next? This brings us on to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is the only film on this list deemed so horrific that it was banned in the UK, uh, becoming one of the small band of video nasties that were surreptitiously passed around as many generation VHS copies uh, from that one shop in the region that imported a Laserdisc in the mid-80s before the BBFC belatedly came to its senses. It seems particularly egregious in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre's case, but, well, we'll get to that. The film itself, uh, after disturbing reports of grave robbing that may affect their grandfather's burial ground, Marilyn Burns's Sally Hardesty and her wheelchair-bound brother Franklin, played by Paul A. Partain, return to their old hometown to investigate. Along for the ride are their friends, Jerry, played by Alan Danziger, Kirk, played by William Vale, and Pam, Terry McMinn. Uh, they are further planning to take a jolly jaunt up to the Hardsley's old homestead. The initial signs that things are going to get really strange come... Well, actually, firstly, they come from this weird old geezer sitting in a tyre. <laughs> uh, but ar- arguably, the first hints of danger come from a goofy-looking hitchhiker, played by Edward Neal, who starts lamenting the 
arguably more humane methods of cattle kittling at the local slaughterhouse. It's, it's quite the much icebreaker. Preferring these, yeah, <laughs> he much prefers the simplicity of battering the cows with a hammer rather than this newfangled bolt gun to the head idea or the chigur method, as I believe it's called. <laughs> uh, after Franklin refuses to purchase an unasked for Polaroid, the hitchhiker Hitchhiker slashes out at Franklin with a pocket knife, leading to the freak being ejected from the camper van. Uh, actually, that's not quite right. Actually, uh, the the freak slashes out with the with the pocket knife first, then takes the photograph, and is for some reason upset that they won't buy that full Polaroid of that <laughs> location. Yes, he's he's a strange fruit. Uh, anyway, he he gets kicked out, and the the mystery squad, the the rest of the gang, use the last of their petrol to continue on to the their now dilapidated dilapidated old home, despite the warnings of the apparently kindly old petrolless petrol station owner, played by Jim Sido, and set about exploring their surroundings. Kirk and Pam go off in search of a nearby swimming hole, only to find it as dry as a bone. However, they do hear a generator in the middle distance, and hoping to buy some petrol from them, I suppose, they head towards the ominous shack. Kirk entering, only to be greeted by the hulking Leatherface, played by the splendidly named Gunnar Hansen, and a crushing blow to the head. So begins the conga line of the damned, as one by one they try to investigate where the other members of the party have gone, only to find uh, the beast that is the reason for the disappearance, and the creepy bo bone-strewn home that he lives in. It seems like Sally may be able to escape after a daring dive through a second-story window, but it transpires that the petrol station owner that she pleads with for help is the father, I assume, of both Leatherface and the disturbed hitchhiker, who returns for the final act and recaptures Sally for a very uncomfortable family meal, along with their surprisingly not dead, given the state of him, grandpa, played by John Dillon. <laughs> Now, certainly in the UK, given its prohibition, the reputation of this film very much precedes it. It's held up as the apex of nasty, violent horror, so it's surprising to me when finally watching this film, sometime oh. after its debanning back in 99, to find that there's almost no explicit violence in the film at all. Uh, director Toby Hooper has cleverly shot this, such that with, I think, with the exception of that one vehicle-slash-man-flesh interface scenario, the only on-screen violence is one minor knife wound and that bloodless mid-to-long shot of a boy getting stop-hammer-timed. Uh -huh. uh, you might think you saw Franklin being sliced and diced with a chainsaw, but actually you didn't. You might think you saw Pam being impaled on a meat hook, but actually you saw someone standing on a box in front of a meat hook saying, Oh dear, how frankly inconvenient this meat hook impalation is. I shall <laughs> certainly miss my lunch appointment at Abernethy. Uh, that might have been the Kensington Chainsaw Massacre, actually. Uh, <laughs> but it, anyway, the point is not to downplay the violence in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, explicit or implied, which is essentially the point of the film. Hooper reflecting the cold, graphic, heartless coverage of the outcome of violence, both domestically in the news footage and from Vietnam, with the act of violence in this film, and unwittingly set the template for a lot of the slasher films that followed it, each upping the ante until we're left with something like the blood-drenched annoyance hostel. Unquestionably, this is worth watching for the shadow that it cast over every slasher film that followed it, and it's a masterclass in effective, low-budget filmmaking. I do not, however, find it remotely scary or threatening in this day and age, perhaps as a result of me coming to this significantly later in the day. In fact, I find much of this film unwittingly hilarious, bar maybe the incessant whining of Franklin of no real issue with any of the victims. 
particularly Marilyn Burns, who's as good at screaming and looking scared as anyone I've ever seen, but the things that she's reacting to creates an unintended humorous juxtaposition for me. <laughs> While the masked Leatherface is a looming, monstrous presence most of the time, the lengthy scenes of him chasing Sally through the woods, swinging a chainsaw, just begs to be speeded up slightly with a yakety sax playing over it, and <laughs> Edward Neal and Jim Sideout's <laughs> final act gurning is so over the top that it's halfway through No Man's Land getting blown up by a German landmine. <laughs> True slapstick, however, ensues when Grandpa's giving the honour of attempting to kill Sally with a hammer, which would be worthy of any Buster Keaton routine, were it not about attempting to kill someone with a hammer. The Korean Buster Keaton, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, comedy gold, for me at least. If it's thrills and spills you're looking for, you've and you become accustomed to the gratuitous, explicit violence that the genre has devolved into, this is going to be tough to take seriously. But its historical footprint, however, does mean that this film warrants viewing, uh, but probably more as a historical artefact than an instrument of true horror. Did I assert earlier on that Don't Look Now was the only film I hadn't seen amongst this group? I think I, I might so. have done, yeah. yes. Uh, and of course, immediately upon you saying that we would progress on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre there, I realised that was totally wrong. I hadn't seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre before, um, although partly that uh, lapse in memories down to the fact that it's one of those films that you probably feel like you've seen, even if you haven't, because again, uh, such a cultural phenom that uh, I'm not sure how I avoided watching it up until this point, I think. Uh, and I'd very much assumed what the movie was and what I would take from it, and perhaps that's why I hadn't bothered watching it up until this point. Uh, this will count as my most pleasant surprise uh, of this particular podcast because I actually found a lot to enjoy. Mm -hmm. Like you say, very much a, a masterclass in low-budget movie-making. There is a surprising amount of pleasure to be found in the pacing of the film, the writing of the film, not so much, but the cinematography actually yes. um, is particularly interesting. And there's one or two shots in there that I did not expect that I absolutely loved. But what the film does best is this kind of relentless matter of factness with which it deals with its protagonists. Um, as you say, it's very difficult to come away from any of these movies feeling genuinely chilled, um, uh, perhaps just because of the exposure we've had to ultraviolence and whatnot in recent years of, of uh, cinema. But you can understand why at the time this movie probably unsettled audiences. And a lot of that is, I think, down to the fact it's it feels far more realistic in its portrayal of violence oh, yes. because it's so bloodless. And like you say, that, see, that scene where Kirk walks in a door, gets blatted on the head with a hammer, yeah, falls yeah. down, gets blatted again, dragged off, and the door slams shut, all of which happens in roughly the same amount of time it took for me to describe it there. Um, it is so ruthless, is I think the word I want to use, yeah. and so almost anticlimactic that it almost, it almost leaves you stunned. Um, because it's not what I was expecting at all. And let you say that this was banned in the UK under the Video Nasties Act thingamabob. Um, it's a little bit baffling because it's actually far less explicit than its reputation would suggest. There is... If I have one gripe about this film, it is Franklin. While a very some common of, grave, isn't mm, it? <laughs> so I understand. While the other performances, one or two of the other performances, and I'm thinking the hitchhiker in particular, are less than accomplished, but perhaps get away with it under the extremes of 
the nature of those characters. You can kind of pass off that performance. Franklin <laughs> is... I don't... Bag composed entirely of douche. Yeah, and I was... I So, your partain fellow who plays Franklin, I read his IMDb uh, bio uh, three or four days ago when I watched this, after I'd watched it, because I wanted to know where this guy was coming from. And laughably he's described as a method actor uh, or certainly he's self-described as a method actor from what I can understand and let us not let us not speak ill of the dead because Mr Partain is, is no longer with us but uh, no actually actually we probably should speak <laughs> ill of the dead because he is reprehensibly atrocious in this there is one scene when they go first go into the house and the others are upstairs, and he has this little monologue all to himself about, oh, Franklin, you and he starts blowing the most egregiously over-the-top raspberries at the others <laughs> from downstairs, where they clearly can't hear him. But it's just, I have no idea. The whole performance is so woefully misjudged. And if I were Toby Hooper, that particular scene serves no narrative purpose. Um, within within the framework of that movie, if I were Toby Hooper, I would have looked at that performance and I would have gone, nah, okay, we'll just cut that scene out because if that is the best that guy could deliver, I have rarely been so irritated by a character who wasn't played by... Who's your Juice Bigelow fella? Rob Schneider. Rob Schneider. I have rarely been so irritated by a character who wasn't played by Rob Schneider in all of the movies that I've ever watched um, as I was by Franklin in this movie. And I feel like I've expended enough oxygen talking about him already. But if for some reason you haven't seen this movie, be warned that that performance is a pretty difficult bridge to cross. If you can... Uh, like me, you may just end up pleasantly surprised by this movie. And uh, yes, it's very easy to see how this uh, was a shock to audiences at the time and how it informed the genre from this point onwards. Uh, and yeah, like I say, very pleasantly surprised. And again, uh, one that I may just end up adding to my collection because I think there's enough there to warrant repeat viewing. Yeah, so I'll just mention a few things. Well, one thing off the Twitter, so our friend Matt Toller, at M. Toller, uh, didn't see this until 2004, and he found it a much more sophisticated effort than he'd expected, and uh, even had some downright artistic touches, and indeed it does. Mm, yeah, uh, I would agree with that. For all I josh this film, uh, and I find the, the final act of it be to be over the top to the point of comedy, uh, it does a more effective job in the first, I don't know, eight tenths maybe of the film uh, in, in building up horror and sort of building up these characters and building up a truly monstrous uh, presence stalking them uh, than anything I've seen in recent times. Um, and yes, it does look particularly good for something that is so cheaply made mm -hmm. um, or inexpensively made perhaps it's not cheap that's, that's perhaps the wrong wrong thing because it doesn't look cheap uh, a lot of the time it looks uh, like it's been you know, very carefully arranged in mm -hmm. the, the way that it's uh, spent its money it's perhaps the most efficient use of capital I think I've seen in filmmaking yet yeah uh, quite possibly yes uh, yes, uh, certainly things to enjoy. And as I say, if nothing else, like many of these films, but this one in particular, I think it's very worth, well worth watching as a uh, historical document. Uh, I did see the remake. I cannot remember a <laughs> damn thing about it, so I shan't say anything more about that, but perhaps that's all you need to know. Um, if you can't really remember, it's probably not worth remembering. The one that was um, exec produced by Michael Bay, if I remember yes. correctly. <laughs> Michael Bay presents. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he does, does he? Uh, 
yeah, so give that one a skip and put this one on your list because, yes, it's certainly worth yes. taking a look at. And you um, too could find yourself saying, where did you get that lampshade? <laughs> Is that Ikea? <laughs> not, no, no, it's not. <laughs> it isn't. Definitely isn't. But I want one. In November 2016, we looked at some modern-day films that chose to embrace a black-and-white aesthetic. And as part of that, Drew Tavendale is going to tell you a little bit about The Man Who Wasn't There. So, um, while they were making The Hudsucker Proxy, the Coen brothers had seen a film which showed a bunch of haircuts from the 1940s, <laughs> which is apparently the reason that they made The Man Who Wasn't There, which is... <laughs> <laughs> the thinnest of reasons for making a film I've possibly ever heard. Is that a fact? Yes. <laughs> what was this film? What was this film was that it? they saw? No, it, was, no, it wasn't. It was while they were filming the Hudsucker Proxy they saw this poster that showed haircuts in the oh, 1930s. Oh, a poster. I'm it, sorry, I thought... It, it wasn't even a film. It was just a poster. Oh. But that was enough time <laughs> to create this Jesus. story of our 1940s um, California barber. Some of the posters these students have in their flats, eh? <laughs> and yet it's not down as an adaptation, really, so I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, <that. exactly. laughs> Adapted from a poster of haircuts. <laughs> It's a, it's a very niche category in the Academy Awards. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. Um, oh, that's golden. Yes. And so, having been so wonderfully inspired by some um, coiffure, um, <laughs> <laughs> the Corn Brothers decided to make a 1940s style modern day set in the 1940s film noir um, about a barber. As you do. <laughs> uh, you can never really accuse the Coen brothers of being um, straight down the line and predictable. The, uh, <laughs> the good hairman, if you will. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, I won't. Sorry. Sorry, but I won't. Uh, I'll get my coat. So, as for the plot of the film itself, it's 1949 in Santa Rosa in California. Billy Bob Thornton plays Ed Crane, a barber who doesn't really like to talk much, apart from a little voiceover in which he talks constantly. <laughs> he is married to Doris, Frances McDormand, who is the bookkeeper of a department store, who's having an affair with Big Dave, played by James Gandolfini. And when the rather mild-mannered, quiet, largely invisible Ed finds this out, and then later finds out a way to advance himself by making money in the new dry cleaning world he decides to blackmail Big Dave and well in the way of most film noirs that doesn't work out well and everything more or less goes to hell in a handbasket yeah, in a slightly uh, more quirky way in this one than most other noirs <laughs> yes <laughs> yes indeed when he is confronted by Big Dave who's worked out that it's Ed that's blackmailing him um, Big Dave ends up dead now that is all fairly standard setup for a film noir. There's the the betrayed man, the accidental death, that sort of thing. Nothing out of the ordinary there. But when you start adding in nascent um, dry cleaning technology, <laughs> UFOs, um, <laughs> a decidedly much more modern sounding defence attorney, uh, UFOs again... <laughs> Because why not? <laughs> and yes, an odd subplot about trying to kickstart the musical career of a friend's daughter. 
it's very much more Coen Brothers and less traditional film noir. It is sort of accurately film noir and completely unlike it at the same yeah. time, which is quite an impressive feat and part of the reason why Joe Coen won the Best Director Award at Cannes when this was released. I don't think it's really good enough to be winning Best Director Awards, but I certainly find it very entertaining. The voiceovers, which in the duration of which in so many films would bother me, is appropriate in a film trying to ape so much um, film noir. And it certainly looks the part and very very standard type of coverage um long depth of field um the lighting very well it feels very kind of ordinary but in fact it's just it's spot on for the time period and so it really looks the piece um once again the working with roger deakins and that's some of roger deakins most uninspired work but getting the nomination for the oscar for best cinematography probably valid just because he's done such a good job of um, convincing facsimile. Billy Bob Thornton is really entertaining with the exception perhaps of Sling Blade, probably never been better. He is a sad kind of pathetic person but still managed to somehow be sympathetic despite all the things that happened to him. It's notable too for a performance from a very young looking Scarlett Johansson and did I mention the UFOs because <laughs> I had entirely forgotten about them but I've decided that all films just need a person randomly believing UFOs for no good reason in them <laughs> and in fact yes now that I'm thinking about it, UFOs get mentioned all the way through and I keep, keep finding things like ashtrays that look like UFOs <laughs> uh, the Coen brothers are, are as I say not in any way predictable and they do like to put their own spin on things it's um, weirdly for um, filmmakers I like so much it's not one of the films I would urge you to seek out as soon as possible if you've not seen it before but for sake of Coen brothers completion completionism is that a word? <laughs> Completiosity yes <laughs> for Coen brothers completiosity that one's definitely cromulent <laughs> thank you it's worth checking out yeah, I don't know what more to say about that. It's perhaps one of the less remarkable films we've talked about tonight because while it's evoking the era and trying to copy the style of the 1940s, it doesn't do the same sort of hugely sort of accurate yet artificial way that the good German does. Yes, it's good, but perhaps unremarkable. I find this film entirely inscrutable. Uh, <laughs> it's I, I, I don't remember seeing it. I'm reasonably sure I saw it at the cinema and um, I've not seen I it since. I suspect you saw it with me, so yeah, I think so. So that's 15 years and basically forgotten pretty much everything about it. So um, I wasn't really expecting what I got when I sat down in front of it because <laughs> uh, like, I remember, oh yeah, this is a kind of neo-noir thing, but it's not a neo-noir, it's neo-noir comedy and it's got this really inscrutable central character who doesn't seem to really care about anything, who has seems to have almost no stakes in most of the film. I mean, he, I mean even when he gets screwed out of his uh, what $10,000 that he's been blackmailing Big Dave for to give to this uh, huckster of a <laughs> dry cleaning yes, the, salesman. The great John Polito. Yeah, that, that doesn't seem to matter to him. He doesn't actually care because he, he came into this money so easily he was happy <laughs> enough just to let it go. And, and why is there UFOs? <laughs> why do they keep showing up? What's going why on? not, Scott? Why not? Why? It's like a, it, it sort of, the best I can come up with is it's kind of like the thought process that went into doing the good German, except they're more easily distractible and keep going off and chasing shiny things. 
So <laughs> it was, when you start a new scene, it kind of starts up as though it's a proper scene from a, a noir, and they're trying to kind of follow the, the tropes and the, the stylistics of it. And then they get a bit bored and go off and do something wacky and zany. And then, then the next scene it will snap back to being sort of a proper noir again, and then it will just start going off the rails in a different direction. It's a very weirdly structured and unique film. Um, I probably enjoyed it more now than I did at the time, but it's it's just weird. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> strange see, it's, film. Um, you're saying about uh, Billy Bob Thornton having no stakes in it. It's yeah because, and there's a quote from a um, film critic for Time that said affectlessness is not a quality much prized in movie protagonists but <laughs> Billy Bob Thornton, that splendid actor, does it perfectly and that's what, because it's it's so unlike most certainly most other Billy Bob Thornton roles um, where <laughs> he's largely um, full of swagger that Texan swagger but he here he is um, he is so almost monotonous but that's actually quite a difficult thing to pull off because it's not um, disinterest from him it is a performance. It's not just like you turned up and couldn't be bothered with it. It's um, to maintain that level <laughs> of disinterest entirely in his own life because he is the man of the title, the man who wasn't there. <laughs> and in almost all respects, that's true. It's really rather interesting because, yes, you don't see many roles like that, many performances like that. It's very interesting and very different from um, like uh, scenery chewing roles you might expect from other people. Yes. It's a very intense disinterest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. If you if you found it inscrutable, consider that I had I had no heads up on what this was whatsoever. Otherwise, other than that, um, I think at the time it, I, I rented it on the basis. Well, it's a Coen Brothers movie, and I understand that it's Coen's doing noir. Um, and I sat down to watch it late at night one night after I can't remember if it was after work or, but it's probably about eleven o'clock. I started watching it, which was folly in itself. And Billy Bob Thornton was cutting some hair, and I fell asleep. And I woke up, and there was a UFO. <laughs> <laughs> it is no better explained had you seen the intervening bits of film. <laughs> so I've, I've essentially just got a heavily distilled um, <laughs> version of it then. So, and I've not had, I, I didn't have the opportunity to uh, to rewatch it in preparation for this podcast. So I've I've kind of feel compelled to do that, but I'm not sure when I'll do it. And then listening to you guys talking about it now is like is, is, is what you're saying. I'm I'm generally torn between is that bumping it up my watch list or bumping it down my watch list. But yeah, it remains an enigma to me. And to me, I've seen it twice. <laughs> I, I I think you should watch it because if nothing else, it'll give us something, someone else to try and make sense of it. Yes, <laughs> we invite your theories. Um, I, I don't think it's it's in no way a boring or uninteresting film, and I think you would enjoy watching it. I just don't think you get to the end of it and kind of yeah. think, "What on earth was that trying to say?" And I don't think it was actually trying to say anything. And that's perhaps that's the point. <laughs> yes, I think that is part of the point. Also, remember. It is based on a film, oh, sorry, based on a poster about haircuts. <laughs> I will keep all Don't of these things at the back Kane. of my mind. I shall endeavour um, I shall endeavour to uh, to watch it before next we speak then, uh, if I have a chance, depending on how long it takes to edit this bad boy down. Uh, I will I will try and watch it in the interim and uh, get back to you on that, certainly. Yeah, I mean, and the other things, it is impeccably acted pretty much by everyone on it it's a, a hell of a cast and they all do pretty well and it's possibly second only to uh, Good Night and Good Luck in the way that it looks I think um, wow. so they're a very pretty looking film um, yeah Roger Deakins just um, has got it spot on for the era well Deakins is the gold standard isn't he basically mm-hmm. so yeah, it's fantastic. I expect nothing less 
Ganz interessant, uh, which leaves us. Our intermission podcast in November 2016 saw us tackle a wide range of films, one of which being Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Brings us to Drew with Miss Peregrine and the something something else that I've not made a note of. <laughs> Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. That's the one. This obviously having made such an impact on me, I entirely forgot I'd watched this for the last time we did an intermission podcast, so <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's actually better than that would make it seem... Uh, Are you sure? Not 100%. No, I was going to say your tone might suggest otherwise, but yeah. you you have our attention. Uh, it feels like quite a while since a Tim Burton film felt particularly Tim Burton-y. Mm. Big Eyes, for example, was good, but lacked pretty much anything of the director's distinctive style. But for good and for bad, much of his style is present in Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, an adaptation by Jane Goldman of the best-selling young adult novel of the same name by Ransom Riggs. Ransom Riggs, remarkably, not being a pseudonym like Lemony Snicket, but a um, person's actual name. Hmm. Some of his parents didn't like him, I think. <laughs> their name is Ransom. And <laughs> they really just named their children after Mel Gibson films. <laughs> Give me back my son! We love you so much, son, that we're going to have you forever associated with kidnapping. Yay. <laughs> yes. After his grandfather, Terrence Stamp, is killed by mysterious creatures, Jake, Asa Butterfield, begins to discover that there was a hidden world that his grandfather was a part of. A world of peculiar children with strange and unusual gifts. Oh. If gifts you want to call them. Like being lighter than air. The ability to control fire. Or the ever useful and desired abilities to animate corpses. <laughs> animate corpses <laughs> or breathe bees. <laughs> That's unusually specific. Can they can they enable both at the same time? That would be awesome. <laughs> I would just point out though that those aren't um, ridiculous examples I've come up with. One of the abilities is breathing bees. Well, those are very much median examples. Aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> These peculiar children live in bubbles of time where they m- must live through the same day over and over again, making the whole thing seem a bit like a school for the crappy X-Men on Groundhog Day. As he tries to learn more about this world, Jake learns that he, too, is peculiar. His own ability being rather more useful than many of the others. In the <laughs> I just so I was the time I was just so struck now by the absurdity of a character whose peculiarity is breathing bees. Michael Caine wouldn't like him. As he's, as he's as he's choking me in the corner. Oh, son, did it go down the wrong hole? Oh, no, no, it's just bees again, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Jake's own ability is that he is the only person who can see the invisible hollows, mutated peculiars who now hunt for the children in order to con- or, uh, <laughs> I've got bees in my mouth. Who now hunt for the children in order to consume their eyes. <laughs> Can I, can I persuade you to try these truffles instead? <laughs> I assure you they will taste better. Why did he want the children's eyes, man? What do I? Why the eyes? Because apparently by eating the eyes, they will get some sort of superpowers, basically. It, it's um, it's kind of horrific for a, um, as basically a children's oh. story. But yes, they, they eat the eyes because that's, that's the best bits. Mmm, delicious vittles. <laughs> <laughs> when the children's protector, Miss Peregrine, Eva Green, once again sporting that excruciating, almost English but mostly inhuman accent through which the French is continually fighting to escape, 
is captured by Samuel L. Jackson's sinister Mr. Barron. It falls to Jake to protect the other children and then to rescue Miss Peregrine from Barron's sinister and evil laboratory, which is, naturally, in Blackpool. It's just, so it's this, the idea of the finale of a Hollywood film being set in Blackpool seems so particularly strange to me. It certainly well, does. The reason for that, actually, is that, or one of the reasons, I don't know if it's in the book or not, but Tim, Tim it's <laughs> cheap. probably. <laughs> Tim Burton really likes the idea of the setting of like a a tourist resort or a fairground town that's all run down and dead, which I suspect people mm. who currently live in Blackpool would object to the, the description of, but seems about right yes. to me. The, the, the one remit that that place is convincingly able yes. to fulfil. I know somebody um, who likes Blackpool and went quite a lot, uh, somebody used to work beside, and Still, mm. when I tell what's the what's the one thing you think about when you think about Blackpool, chip papers. If <laughs> 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 he likes the place, my my father in law's enthralled by Blackpool, and I can't just help but thinking, John, you just haven't been to Blackpool in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Do they go on the big one? Oh, is that the Pepsi Max roller coaster or whatever it's called these days? I don't know. No, no roller coasters were harmed in the making of this film. That's... Did they go on a log flume? <laughs> Did they shoot heroin in Blackpool? I hear that's what people do. Is that why they want the eyes? For the heroin? The eyes for the heroin? What? Yes. <laughs> Dude, I wish Bastille Day in the shallows. Narrative logic is not big on my agenda She's right got now. heroin Davis eyes. <laughs> Tangentially. <laughs> Back, back to the still, film. Still, still vaguely related. Like, yeah. Several, yeah, I'm, I'm not in it this one. Several layers, several layers existentially <laughs> removed from the original topic. <laughs> I get what we're. I get. I get the. I get the idea of what it is we're talking about. But not entirely because I've forgotten. It's really just a. It's really just a feeling. But that okay. Back to the film. That's more or less it for your plot. Weird children with strange abilities getting hunted by monsters that want to eat their eyes. Um, controlled by Samuel Jackson. There's a big showdown in Blackpool where the kids all come together to rescue Miss Peregrine. You had me a heroin <laughs> eyes. Very Moorish. While calling it unoriginal sounds harsh, much of it feels... <laughs> I think it's made a reasonable case for originality at this point. <laughs> I was just thinking, hence that famous saying, ah, I can't see the heroin for the heroin. <laughs> That's because you... <laughs> It's because your eyes are filled with heroin, Timmy. Oh, that'll be it. <laughs> Ow, a tree. Okay, admittedly, our, our um, trip off into the... <laughs> I like this movie. Oh, I like this movie that we made. <laughs> oh, bloody hell. Okay. Well, Kong on original sounds harsh and now barking mad from uh, a trip there. <laughs> Much of it um, feels too familiar. A combination of... <laughs> <laughs> a combination of heroin and eyes. <laughs> I'll edit this one, Scott. It's all right. <laughs> I'll leave it. Oh, She's got heroin babies. <laughs> Feeling too familiar as it does with a combination of Burton's reworking and reusing of his previous tricks. 
remembering how much he's otherwise uh, filmed the big, big eyes. <laughs> that took a lot of heroin, man. Extra heroin storage. <laughs> We've just, we've just cracked the button code. Man. Heroin. It was always heroin. I'm telling you, man. Eyes. There's a secret message that runs through all of his films and Obama wasn't born in America, man. <laughs> heroin doesn't cook hot enough to melt eyes, man. <laughs> I got a you know, of Burton reworking and reusing his previous tricks and the story sharing some elements with other works. <laughs> <laughs> such a strange spotting. Full of heroin filled eyes, all of his other works are. Um, it is also a little long as it does begin to drag a little towards the end. It's more Burton in style than in substance, but for fans of the director, it's worth checking out for that alone. <laughs> but it's still a decently entertaining, if slight diversion, quite apart from that. <laughs> Moving on from Tim Burton's heroin filled ocular cavities. December 2016 saw us add to the internet's ever-growing storage house of Star Trek ephemera, and as part of that, this is a review of Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Yes, so that arc finally concluded, and after having saved the Earth, not really been in a position to be punished too heavily by Starfleet, things should more or less be back to normal. Captain Kirk should be aboard the Enterprise, the crew should be back together... And what is going to happen next? Oh, Kirk fights God. Right, yes, okay. I, I'm glad we're, we're just keeping things in a nice, slow, upward slope after saving the space whales. Okay, so, so Scott, tell us about the one where Kirk fights God. Yeah, Star Trek V, the final frontier. Although there's nothing final about it. Uh, Bill Shatner takes the reins of this outing. The moment we've all been waiting for, or at least the moment that he was waiting for, with a script developed from one of his ideas. The Nimbus 3 project was a dream given form, its goal to prevent another war by creating a place where humans and aliens can work out their differences peacefully. It's a port of call, a home away from home, for diplomats, hustlers, entrepreneurs and wanderers. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tonnes of spinning metal, all alone in the night. <laughs> Hang on, that's not right, that's Babylon 5, isn't it? But Nimbus 3 is basically the same idea, but with Klingons, Romulans, and human settlers uh, theoretically banding together to build an idyllic new world, but the planet turned out to be a barely inhabitable dust bowl, where the prevailing aesthetic is very much Wild West with touchscreens. Used as a dumping ground for criminals and washed-up diplomats, it's in no condition to defend itself when a small cult-like force ultimately revealed to be under the control of Spock's half-brother Cybok, played by Lawrence Luckinbill, shows up and takes over the joint. Taking the ambassadors hostage, they demand attention, and it falls to Captain Kirk and the Funky Bunch to cut short their show leave, complete with the perilous mountain climbing and gravity boot rescuing. But on reaching Nimbus 3, Cybok reveals its true intentions, wanting to hijack the Enterprise and head off to the centre of the galaxy, passing through a supposedly impenetrable barrier with the intent of finding Shakari, the cradle of creation, and along with it, God. Uh, Cybok has rejected the strict compliance with logic and the suppression of emotion that the rest of the Vulcans have somehow managed to impose on the entire planet, uh, which saw him exiled from his homeworld and his family. He's now using his mental powers to revisit the defining moments of pain and upset in people's lives, and helps them to deal with this, which, for reasons not entirely explained, makes people compliant with Cybok's scheme. Kirk's having no part of this procedure, claiming his pain defines him as though he's a character of Hellraiser or something, uh, but Cybok's party trick convinces the other key members of the Enterprise to go along with it, apart from Spock, whose essential response of, yes, 
and <laughs> seems to be the only appropriate one for everyone, but you know, hey-ho. Uh, so with that pair suitably restrained, they go off to Shakari. Unfortunately, the effects budget runs out along the way. They find, at least as far as the script's concerned, an alien that takes on the aspects of divinity to trick them into releasing him, with only Kirk seeing through the ruse with his penetrating question of what does God need with a starship, uh, which angers God and shows the others the error of his ways and they try to get the heck out of there and unfortunately it's a horrendously cheap sequence replete with polystyrene rock monsters and special effects that are basically a floodlight on a stick to represent <laughs> the supposed creator of all things and it's very much an ending where the reach has exceeded the grasp and it's a pretty amateurish farcical note to end a film on and you know t- to an extent that's a bit of a shame as in the early running there's evidence that some of the lessons of the previous films had been learned the outdoor shots of yosemite and the mojave desert locations that is used for Nimbus three look pretty good and it lends some authenticity to a franchise that's not exactly been teeming with it initially at least the cast again show the mix of camaraderie and needling particularly in the kirk mccoy spock trifecta and it's difficult not to like that mm-hmm. um, however i have a feeling that lawrence luckenbill was cast primarily on his physical resemblance to their first choice sean connery um, but again in the early running he's crafting a very different and quite interesting antagonist in fact throughout the piece i've no real complaint with his performance but rather the writing as it's in no way clear why having some dude essentially say they're there it's all right <laughs> would make him worthy of becoming an instantly convincing as a leader the way the script relies on it's daft really daft and i might have let that slide if it were the daftest thing in the film but it's not the final act just lacks all credibility from the ten thousand feet view it makes a sort of sense but the actuality of it is such a dreadful effects boondoggle that it just really kills it however the worst worst of all of it is that when you hear Shatner's vision for it, it wouldn't actually be any better. A shade less embarrassing, but the main flaws to this are structural, not cosmetic. Science fiction's taken several cracks at dealing with religion, and I can't really think of any offhand that's been particularly successful at it. Of all the vehicles to examine it, though, there's scarcely a less suitable vessel than Star Trek. After all, it wasn't until Deep Space Nine that there was any attempt at characterization of aliens at all, apart from the hat that their species wear, as we discussed earlier. Let alone having any sort of character that's complex enough to start talking about their foundational beliefs one way or the other. I've never held this film in quite as terrible a regard as most other people do. I think in part because the first half of the film is okay, and mainly because I welcome Shatner's attempt at tackling something a little more ambitious than the franchise mm. had shot for so far. I mean, he's missed by a mile, quite <laughs> obviously, but yes. he deserves a little credit for trying. Yeah, so, I mean, that partial defence aside, it's by no means a film I could commend to a casual observer. It's not one I could, in all honesty, recommend to a Star Trek fan. Hell, I'm not even sure I'd recommend it to a fan of this film. (laughs) But, yes, your mileage may vary, but, yeah, I probably body swear of this one. Yes, you say you don't have quite the same sort of level of hatred or dislike, whatever, um, versus Mm. other people. So allow me... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, that's maybe um, overstating it somewhat but this film for me is just is one that I quite enjoy disliking it was the motion picture is just too dull to care about this is entertainingly stupid and wrong enough to <laughs> get, like, let me get my teeth into it a little I've just got so many problems with this film and yes like you say the idea of tackling religion which even given several years which in Deep Space Nine they still didn't do so well struggle very much in this film I don't know. Yeah, some interesting ideas in there. I wouldn't say um, so much missed opportunity because missed might suggest there was ever a chance of hitting what they're aiming for here and I don't think that was the case. But yeah, we come back to problems again. We've mentioned and we mentioned the other films of the Planet of the Hats, 
because a lot of the beginning of this is predicated mm. on the fact that all Vulcans are exactly the same and they're all logical, which <laughs> always bothered me. Um, yeah. Not even just like the way we were talking about with Klingons earlier, but the fact that all that all that logic stuff doesn't make sense and it's also never been consistently written um, because yeah. a lot of the time they're doing things that are clearly not logical or clearly emotional. So there's that. That's a problem to begin with. And that's part of like the schism of Cyborg and the Vulcans. There's also the problem that Cyborg sounds like a robotic antelope. And I, <laughs> once that idea came into my head, I could not shift that idea for love nor money. <laughs> and to be fair, would make for a much better film. <laughs> yes. The issue with like quite how Cyborg becomes Nuevo Jesus, um, <laughs> not so much because of philosophy, but because of rich tea and sympathy. It's... <laughs> everything is so very underwritten about this film yeah <laughs> and yeah it starts off really promisingly too because yes while there are some wide shots that are yosemite the rest if it's not a look a set i think or sort of location but it feels yeah. different it feels like outdoors and it just it does feel different from like the usual rubbery sets they have and when you have those character building moments and just like you didn't no, it's the character changes so much, but the scenes with Bones and Kirk and Spock sitting around the campfire and things, yeah, that's really entertaining. And I think you get the feeling that by this point, a lot of the antipathy that was famously there between particularly Shatner and um, Nimoy um, has gone a lot. Um, mm. Certainly, there was never the edge there, much like in Red Dwarf when you had... Um, Chris Barry and Craig Charles hated each other at first, and that eventually that antipathy went away. Yeah, and there's something more relaxed about those scenes, and that I think it reflects true life, but also makes those scenes more entertaining and believable. Mm. So those male character pieces are fun, and then the bits with like Chekhov pretending it's in a storm and stuff. So it starts off really promisingly. <laughs> yeah. It's it's forgettable, but it's it's nice, mildly entertaining, quite funny, I guess. And then I'm not quite sure which way this around was filmed, but they have those big spotlights to. Because it saves them actually having to cart the props for a shuttlecraft down onto um, the set. And it's like they looked at that and thought, these big spotlights we're using to pretend there's a shuttlecraft there. That would work just as well as a god, right? <laughs> it's like you mentioned it. Basically, god is a big spotlight on a stick um, at the end. Yeah, to be fair, very much a backup plan. Another one where they just ran out of money mm -hmm. and... The, the original stuff was going to be a little bit more impressive from what it sounds like, but it still just would have been fancier graphics. It, it still wouldn't have made a lot of sense in terms of the story arc of it. Yeah, it's, It still would have basically been, as you say, Shatner coming to God and punching him and going away. You know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, yeah, I think the problem there too is it's a lot of problems with any sort of big alien concepts is to try and find a way to deliver that without making people just laugh out loud. Yeah. Um, or disappoint people is very difficult when you look at things like signs or mama when you can completely ruin a film with um, bad choices in that sort of regard Yeah. how you do some sort of godlike creature without using just straight up stereotypes or archetypes um, yeah. is, is difficult okay and then some of that I don't know if it's simply a case of lack of budget, though, or just I think maybe it's a lack of expertise, because I know, yes, 
because foolish people talk about Star Wars as being a science fiction film, which of course it isn't. It's a fantasy film. Um, mm. Just because it has spaceships doesn't mean it's science fiction. But there are, between these two series, sometimes there are bits where certain ideas or places overlap. And I'm thinking here about the cantina in Mos Eisley because some of this planet Nimbus 3 makes me think of Tatooine. And then I think in 1977, the cantina in Star Wars looked like a real place. It was a set, but the way it was filmed looked like a real place. The light was right and it was lively. And Okay, it was full of puppets. It was this lively place and you felt there was some bad things potentially going on there. The equivalent place in Star Trek V clearly is a soundstage. It's lit like television, um, yeah. not film. So it, it feels so artificial and it takes you out of the film immediately and that's an ability thing i think not a budget thing and also it's against because comparisons always there in my head the cantina was this lively place full of people and you know chatting and stuff and this place in numbers three has about four and a half people two tables and the world's worst dancer <laughs> who um this cat alien erotic dancer who basically just sort of moves her hands from side to side a wee bit <laughs> there's no richness there so i don't know see i don't think i really don't think that's budget i think that's ability now whether that's shatner's ability because he's not exactly well versed in feature film direction i don't know but it's it's got lofty aims but really doesn't have either the money or the skill to get even close to them and yeah, then it's so massively let down by the the fact that Robo Antelope says they're there, like you say, yeah. <laughs> and suddenly he's got a whole bunch of disciples who are going against years of training and the fact that they're betraying their friends. Yeah. So weak. Yeah, this is not what I would recommend anybody watch. I mean, if you wanted to watch another Star Trek film, I would certainly put that as a head of the motion picture because you can at least enjoy it in a sort of hate watch sort of way as opposed to just being <laughs> bored to death <laughs> but it's it's not good no no partial credit for trying and if if this had went through a few more script revisions by someone not someone who wasn't William Shatner you know maybe it would have been a bit more sensible at the end of the day but yeah the, the final product this one not really worth looking at and we'll round things out today with a look at something from our intermission podcast of December 2016 and one of our favourite films of that year, Kubo and the Two Strings. Kubo and the Two Strings, which means I'm going to hand over to Drew. Hiya. Hiya. <laughs> From the moment stop motion masters Laika arrived with their debut, The Excellent Coraline, they have done two things that so many other films for children typically fail to do. Allow for quietness, Coraline was particularly notable for this at a time when mental breather in Western animation meant going at 80 miles per hour with a thousand things happening on screen rather than 100 miles per hour. Coraline dared to be measured and calm with periods of little to no action to allow both character and audience moments for contemplation. And secondly, they treated their audience with respect and intelligence both intellectually and emotionally. Both of these traits, particularly the latter, are on display in their latest outing, a Japanese-inspired tale called Kubo and the Two Strings. If you must blink, do it now. 
pay careful attention to everything you see and hear, no matter how unusual it may seem. But please be warned, if you fidget, if you look away, if you forget any part of what I tell you, even for an instant, then our hero will surely perish. Kubo warns us over the film's stormy beginning. Portentus, humorously admonishing the audience, both young and old, not to be distracted, yet also prophetic, as pay attention to the meticulously crafted scenes and you will see clues of what is to come. During the aforementioned storm, baby Kubo and his mother are adrift on the ocean, finally coming to be washed up on the shore near an isolated village. Fast forward a few years, and we see young, one-eyed Kubo as caregiver to his mother, who is suffering from depression. Kubo makes a few coins by performing in the village square, dazzling the crowds with his actually magical displays of animated origami characters, driven by the playing of his shamisen, who tell the tale of the evil Moon King and the noble samurai Hanso. Except that, for Kubo, it's not a story. It's his family history. One day, failing to follow his mother's instructions to always return home before sunset, he is rediscovered by his mother's evil sisters, who want to take Kubo back to his grandfather so that he can take Kubo's other eye. Using the last of her magic, Kubo's mother transports him to a faraway mountainside, from where he must set out to find a legendary sword and set of armour, the only things that will allow to defeat the orb-desiring tyrant. His companions on this quest will be a living origami samurai model, a talking monkey brought to life from his wooden monkey charm, and a former samurai who was cursed into being a giant beetle with no memory. All pretty much standard fare, really. Set in samurai-era Japan, and incorporating or referencing numerous Japanese art forms, archetypes, and stories, it feels every bit like it could be an authentic ancient Japanese tale, despite being a newly crafted story. Kubo is fantastic, thrilling, beautiful, and pretty damn ambitious. Think animating small puppets frame by frame is a chore? Now imagine doing it with a massive skeleton whose torso alone is nearly three meters tall. It's a truly marvellous technical achievement. It is also astonishingly beautiful. Every scene a wonderful place to spend some time, and so many of them. But all of this is in service to the story, and while it is, at its core, a fairly traditional hero's journey, it also has plenty of other material into which to sink your teeth. It's charming and amusing, also at times sad, thoughtful and melancholy. And to return to my earlier point about treating its young audience with respect, it never ever talks down to them, and never feels the need to bring out Johnny Exposition and his exposition hammer to explain just what's going on. But perhaps it's the emotional intelligence it credits children with that matters most, with the themes of young caregivers and parental loss amongst others. Overseeing all of this is first-time director Travis Knight, lead animator on Laika's three previous features. Oh, and he also happens to be CEO. And if he's been working his way up to direction, then he's achieved it with remarkable aplomb. This is most assuredly not a case of the boss using his influence on Julie and screwing things up. It's not all technique, artist and design that make Kubo so effective though. The voice talent really helps too. Matthew McConaughey, though apparently half doing a George Clooney impression at least in my years, as Beetle and Charlize Theron as Monkey, gives sufficient heft to the two main adult roles and Art Parkinson, perhaps best known as Game of Thrones' Rickon Stark, is an extremely assured performance as Kubo. This is just a remarkable film.
it's thrilling and inspiring and entertaining and funny and lovely and I basically don't have anything bad to say about this film in any way at all. <laughs> I think you should see it because it's magnificent. Cool. I think I should see it as well because I forgot that I promised to watch it and I watched <laughs> The Mechanic Resurrection instead. <laughs> poor choice, sir. Poor because, choice. Because you hate yourself, clearly. <laughs> I'm, op- I'm, hoping, I'm hoping you chose a little more wisely, Scott. Well, sadly, I've seen both. Uh, but not, not sadly in this case because Google was fabulous. I would just be reiterating everything Drew says. It's absolutely lovely. I like the story very much and it's very touching. Very heartfelt film. Yeah, so it's a wonderful thing. I do think that if you are going to cast Johnny Exposition and his Exposition Hammer, but not use him for exposition, I think that is a miscasting of Johnny Exposition. <laughs> um, but other than that, um, I don't really have any complaints about the film. In fact, that is something I don't normally do with these kind of films. I actually looked up some other reviews because I wanted to see what kind of vile monster could not like this film. Mm. And there just, aren't many, though. Really, are there? There aren't many, thankfully. But they just, we just say that it's boring, and I just cannot imagine what they are missing in this film. It's absolutely gorgeous and there's so many lovely little set pieces and just lovely touches all the way through. If there are people that are bored by this, Scott, I think they must be the same sort of people that I mentioned and who like the type of film that I mentioned at the start, the the time that's a thousand miles per hour every minute of the thing, Mm. you know, the ADHD generation. Because how else could you be bored by this? I can only imagine the people who are expecting robots punching other robots in the face. That sounds awesome. Can I watch that film? Yes, yes, you can. (laughs) You can get them in a box set. I think there have been six so far. Lovely film. Possibly my favourite of the year. If not, it's in contention for it. It's strong for me for a favourite film of the year as well. It's it's just beautiful. That good, huh? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, it. I don't know why um, I sound surprised at that actually because Coraline was an absolute treat that was by far and away and you know yeah. one of the best three films I saw that year. Yeah, for mm. me, like I seem to have been following a a trajectory kind of similar to Pixar, mm-hmm. though they seem to have gone through it a bit more quickly. It's like Coraline was a bit like I mean it's not an exact replica of their journey, but Coraline's a bit like Toy Story. It was a really good film, but it was them sort of finding their feet, so it had flaws even though it was very entertaining. Mm. Then a couple more films where they were just trying out some different stories and getting everything together. I like Paranorman a lot. Box Trolls was okay, but nothing fantastic for me. But then I think by the time they've got to Kubo, though, they've more or less skipped their Toy Story 2 stage and have gone straight to Toy Story 3. <laughs> Maybe there's not so much to choose between those right enough, but it's quite remarkably accomplished filmmaking. And yeah. More or less everything in here is done perfect like i genuinely can't find a fault with it yeah i mean i was thinking when i was watching it, i don't know if it's just because obviously the japanese themes but i was thinking this is this is miyazaki-esque at his finest and mm-hmm. you know the miyazaki that showed up for spirit of the way not the one that wrote ponyo you know that's mm. that, that that's the sort of bracket we're talking about here so i can't wow. really give anything much higher praise than that so yes definitely go see it holy moly I, I wouldn't belabor any more points that is that is yeah, uh, it's a thing to get to it's fantastic it is phenomenal really to see it so thanks for your attention. If you listened this far, apologies if it's been familiar to many of you. But uh, we'll be back in 10 days with some fresh content for you. If you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, you can do so by a number of means, either through email with podcast at fudsonfilm.com, through Twitter, we're at fudsonfilm, or through Facebook, that's facebook.com slash fudsonfilm. We'll be back with you very soon. But until that time, take care of yourself and each other.